Can we talk? No, I mean really talk. Not in the usual typing, texting, posting, commenting sort of way we're so used to, where discussions become debates. And somehow, every opinion is wrong. I'm talking about truly thoughtful, considerate, healthy communication. Because I have questions, and I'm convinced there are answers. Sure, it may get uncomfortable or awkward, heated or hot, but I'm not willing to let fear, insecurity, anger, or pain get in the way of fulfillment, insight, answers, and peace. I need to know, when it comes to bigotry, exclusivity, and anxiety, misogyny, sexual sanctity, and agony, what does God demand? What does the Bible command? Where do we stand? Are you ready to talk? Well, good morning. It is good to have you. Those of you here in Bellingham, so glad that you joined us on this incredibly beautiful day. Those of you in Skagit, glad you're with us today. And those of you in Boca Raton, just want you to know that yesterday, for the first time in 2017, we hit 70 degrees. It's an amazing thing. We are now complaining about how hot it is. Uh, it's good to have you with us. Those of you watching with us online streaming, uh, good to have you with us as well. We're in the fifth week of our series, Conversations, where we've been looking at a lot of different subject matter that we can have conversations. And one of the things I said in the very first week is, so often in uh, some of these conversations, if there's someone that has a differing belief, a different opinion, a different stance uh, than we do, that very often we're really quick to vilify them, to demonize them, to put them down, uh, to put them in a camp, to stereotype, and sometimes we'll even go as far as, as beginning to minimize their capacity for intellectual uh, thought and uh, that they would even hold that opinion. And when we do that, we make great sacrifices. We sacrifice really good, healthy conversations where we can learn and hear and be heard and those kind of things. We sacrifice relationships, and we sacrifice any possibility of having any kind of influence on someone because we've already ostracized them. And so today, in the topic that we will have a conversation about, it's probably one of the most hotly debated, dis dis discussed, and disagreed upon topics, and probably leads to more of this polarizing, ostracizing of, of groups and camps and, and thoughts and, and individuals. Today we're going to enter into the LGBTQ conversation. And as has been very much the case throughout this series, I will often uh, offer you some resources that will allow you to go deeper in, in your exploration of these conversations. And the resource that I would point you to today is this book, People to be Loved. And um, I would just say on this conversation, I've not read anything as good, as thorough, as sound, as ob um, objective and fair as this uh, book uh, right here. And what I'm really excited about is not to just point you to this book, and we have them available for sale today here and in Skagit, but, um, but we have the author of this book actually with us today to share with us. I first heard this individual speak uh, a little over a year ago. Pastor Kip and I were at a conference, and he spoke, and we both looked at each other at the end of that session and said, I wonder if there's any way we could ever get uh, Preston to come to Cornwall Church. And so he is here today, and I've asked Preston uh, in his uh, time with us today to not so much hit the what of the conversation. Uh, he does that in his book, and we'll do some of that tonight in the Q&A time. 
but more of kind of why is this conversation so, so critical to engage in, and how can we do it in a way that is God-honoring, respectful of others, and actually very, very productive? Uh, with that, I will say that tonight at 6 o'clock in this room, we're going to be having a Q&A. Has some time with, with Preston starts at 6 uh, p.m., and if you have questions that you would like to have answered, you can text those in. There's a, there's a phone number in the link where you can text those questions in. I would not wait until tonight to text your question in because I'm sure that by that time we will have more questions than we have time to answer. So I uh, encourage you to do that. Anyway, what I'm wondering is right now, would you, uh, would you give an incredibly huge warm Cornwall welcome to my friend Preston Sprinkle as he comes and shares with us. Thanks, Bob. Thank you for that uh, introduction. Cornwall, it's really good to be here with you guys. Um, uh, Beautiful weather here. I I thought it was supposed to be raining, and uh, this has been, I almost kind of bummed I'm at church this morning, but you're here, so I guess we could go ahead and do this. Um, Give me a show of hands. Um, How many of you are glad that you're not me right now (laughs) to talk about this topic? (laughs) I mean, don't, don't you wish we can just have a good conversation about this topic? I mean, so often with our, our social media frenzy and, and how volatile and political this discussion is, it's, sometimes it's just, we, we just can't talk and listen to each other. So that, that's the goal today is that we would, we would have a conversation. It's kind of one-sided at this point. Tonight we'll actually have a conversation. But I, but I want to just deflate some of the tension and just say, let's just, let's just sit back and really think through this topic in a way that we can try to understand where different people are coming from. And so that's why I brought uh, several of my friends here. Unfortunately, they were all on a United flight, and they didn't make it. They got dragged out before. <laughs> Delta gives me kickbacks for that. Um, this, is my <laughs> this is my friend Dan. Dan is a, a gay man. He's been married to another man for about 20 years. He's not a, no faith commitment. He's not religious at all. In fact, he, he kind of... He kind of doesn't like Christians at all. Uh, like any chance he gets, he's going he's gonna to attack Christianity. He's going to slam on Christians. He's going to mock Jesus. I mean, I mean he is that guy that, that tends to drive conservative evangelical Christians crazy. He is kind of the symbol of that kind of secular gay person who hates Christians. And Christians kind of tend to hate him as well. This is my friend. Um, I'm going to call him Tom. Uh, You'll see why I word it that way in a second. Uh, Tom is a uh, pastor. He's in his 60s. He's been a pastor for about 20, 25 years. He's married to a woman. He's got several kids, several grandkids. He's a pastor of actually a fairly large church in a very well-known denomination. Um, but Tom is, is unique in that he is exclusively attracted to other men. And nobody really knows it. Uh, he, he is what we would call a, a closeted gay pastor. Now, theologically, he's, he's actually conservative. He, he believes marriage is between a man and a woman. That's, I mean, he's married to a woman. He's not married to a guy. He's, he's faithful to his wife. He's not out like, sleeping around with other guys. But he says, I just can't for my entire life. I have been exclusively attracted to men. And if I actually told my congregation that I struggle with this, I would be fired on the spot and ran out of church. Um, this is my friend Leslie. Leslie is uh, a biological female. Uh, in her, um, she's in her late 30s. And Leslie is, well, from the time she was four years old, 
from the time she was four years old, she says, Preston, I, I just, I believed I was a boy. I, I wasn't trying to make a statement. I wasn't trying to be, you know, try, trying to like react against, you know, people or, 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 you know, I wasn't angry at my parents or anything. I just, from the time I can remember, I just believed I was a boy. But, but when I became six, seven, eight years old, I began to realize that my biology is what must have been wrong because I, I, I know I'm a boy, but my biology says I'm a female. Now, she was also raised in the church, and, and so she loved Jesus with all her heart. I memorized verses, went to summer camp. She was sold out for Christ. But the older she got, she began to realize that she has these two very different worlds going on, her faith commitment to Jesus and her struggle with her, with her gender identity. We're going to hear more about Leslie in, in, in a moment. Um, the next person is... Uh, uh, Maddie. Maddie is a, um, Maddie's a lesbian, uh, but she is actually, she's actually not attracted to, to women. You see, Maddie, when, when she was uh, nine years old, her, her dad took her by the hand and, and walked her down into the basement, and uh, she didn't really know what was going on, but, but she just followed him, and, and he ended up taking her and putting a chain around her and chaining her to the toilet in the basement and left her there for three months. Gave her bread, water to keep her alive, but finally the chain started to wear through her skin, and so he, he went down and he unlocked her and let her go and, and says, honey, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm so sorry about this. If you tell anybody I did this to you, I will, I will kill you. Um, and then sent her back to elementary school where he proceeded to rape her for the next four years. And so Maddie, um, Ma- Maddie today says, I'm not actually attracted to women, but but no man will ever touch me again. This is my friend, Justin. Justin is, uh, I think I got these mixed up. This is Maddie over here. This is Justin here. Justin was uh, raised in a wonderful Christian home, loving parents, uh, just a wonderful, healthy Southern Baptist Christian home. And he was so sold out for Jesus that they, they nicknamed him God Boy growing up. I mean, he would run around the halls of school, you know, preaching the gospel, memorizing verses, sharing Jesus. But w- when he hit puberty, he, he, he realized he was, was attracted to other boys at school. And he was really tormented by this. His attractions were unwanted. They just like came upon him. It's not like he woke up one day and says, hey, I want to be gay. And he really wrestled with this. He would stay up late at night in a bed full of tears praying, God, please take this away. But God didn't take it away. And so he began to study, well, what does the Bible say about this? And, and through studying and, and looking at different perspectives, he actually came to the conclusion that the Bible doesn't prohibit uh, same-sex, monogamous, marital, sexual relations. And so he would be what we call a, an openly gay-affirming uh, Christian, still, still has a strong faith commitment. This is my friend Matt here. Matt is very similar to Justin. These are very similar stories. Both of them healthy Christian homes, sold out for Jesus, unwanted same-sex attraction. But Matt after studying the scriptures, says, you know what? No, I, I think that God has designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. And I'm not attracted to women, and so until, unless God changes that someday, I'm going to be committed to a, a life of singleness and celibacy because if, it would be disobedience for me to pursue my sexual desires. This is Eric. Eric, again, very similar here, um, raised in a Christian home. I wouldn't say it wasn't as healthy as, as Matt or Justin. Um, Eric realized he was gay at, at 13, 14 years old, but he, he was treated 
really harshly in school. You know, he, he was shamed. He was made fun of. He was mocked. He, he was, he was uh, physically abused. In fact, one time, some, some kids were beating him up, and a, and a teacher was present looking on and didn't do anything about it. Because, you know, he's the gay kid. Maybe he should be beat up. Finally, he couldn't take it. He, he came out to his parents, and his, his parents says, well, God has assigned you to hell, and you are an abomination, and you need to get out of our house. We're not going to have an abomination living under our roof. And, and he actually wanted to help other gay kids wrestle with their sexuality, but it got so, it got so bad that um, Eric became a statistic, and he ended up taking his life. Um, four, four, uh, gay kids, gay teenagers are four to eight times more likely to commit suicide, especially when they experienced rejection and shame from their parents and family in the house. And I could fill the morning. I could, we could fill this stage with chairs and, and just go through stories after story. But my whole point in doing this is, well, two things. Number one, when we think about LGBTQ-related questions, we need to get rid of our stereotypes, we need to recognize the diversity of people who are in, in this conversation. And number two, this conversation is not just about issues. It's not just about debates. It's not just about public policies and political persuasions. This conversation is about real people. Real people with hopes and fears and joys and dreams and desires and struggles people to be loved. And we can't, we're, we're going to get into stuff, and look, I guarantee in a room this size, some of you will agree with stuff I say, other things you may say, I don't know about that, and other people, no, I actually disagree with that, and that, I, that I'm, a, I'm assuming that, that's okay, but the one thing we all need to agree on before we can go any further is that we're talking about real people, real people. I often get asked, uh, how did you get into this um, how did you get into this conversation? Um, uh, and I want to get rid of that one. Um, it, it happened kind of, you know, I was, I've been a college professor for most of my, my uh, career uh, for about 10 years. And, and it was several years ago, I, I had a bunch of college students coming to me and, and asking me questions about homosexuality, you know. And, and um, they were like, hey, what, what is the... What does the Bible say about homosexuality? And I would kind of give the stock Christian answer, the answer that most Christians grow up with. Well, the, the Bible says it's, it's wrong, and marriage is between a man and a woman. And, and, but then they started asking me, well, well, where does it say that? And what does Jesus say about it? And, and the more they asked questions, I realized, here I am, a Bible professor, and I, I didn't know how to respond. You see, I knew what I believed, but I didn't know why I believed it. You ever experienced that in your Christian journey? Someone asks you a question, or usually it's your kids or something, and, and, you know, what do we believe about this? What do we believe about that? And you give the stock answer, just kind of knee-jerk answer, but then they start saying, well, what chapter and what verse is that in? And you're like, oh, I don't know. I just, it's just there somewhere, and probably in Leviticus, right? <laughs> you can always blame it on Leviticus because no one's going to call you on it. <laughs> and so I began to be kind of convicted. Here I am, a Bible-believing, Bible professor, and I can't give an actual biblical answer to what I believe. That's kind of sad. And so I embarked on this journey to figure out what does the Bible actually say. Now, my, my posture as a, as, a, as a biblical scholar is whenever I, whenever I 
lay a view on the table and examine it. I, I, I try my hardest not to read into the Bible what I want it to say. And that's kind of a scary place to be because sometimes, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll lay your views on the examining table, you'll, you'll look at it, you'll re-examine it, and you'll, you'll realize that, you know what, my Sunday school teacher growing up, she nailed it. <laughs> what I thought I believed is, is exactly what the Bible says. But other times, you lay your view on the examining table and you realize, no, I, this, this was, maybe it comes from culture or, or ch- church tradition or something, but it's not actually in the Bible. So I, when I began this study, I said, I'm going to go where the text leads. Because if there's a God who breathed stars into existence, who also breathed out his word, then we can do no other. We need to go where the text leads even if it leads us away from previously held commitments. And I was willing to do that. I got my my Greek studies out, my Hebrew, my commentary, just piles and piles of books, reading all kinds of stuff on both sides of this debate, and I was committed to go where the text leads. But, you know, I did something else in my study that would change my life. I got my head out of the books and into the lives of real LGBTQ people. I actually didn't know a lot of gay people at that time. And I said, well, if I'm studying this topic, I want to get to know some LGBT people. And so I just started uh, meeting gay, lesbian, transgender people and said, hey, can I, can I buy you lunch? I'm, a, I'm an evangelical Christian. I'm a Bible professor at a Bible college, and I just I want to hear your story. <laughs> and they said, yeah, right. <laughs> they said, we... we I've never, I've never had an evangelical Christian say they just want to hear my story. What's your real angle? <laughs> I said, really? No one just wants to hear your story? They said, no. And I said, well, well that's a problem. Can we, can we talk about that? No, I just, I, I, want, to, I want to hear your story. I'm not, I don't experience same-sex attraction, I, 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 but I want, to, I want to, if I'm studying this topic, I don't want it just to be a topic. I want to get to know the real people whose lives this affects. And so I sat down with dozens of LGBT people and just listen to their stories. And I got to tell you, my, my heart was broken. And not that they were all like horrible stories or whatever. Some of them were really bad. But here is the one common thread that was woven throughout the diversity of these stories. The one common thread was this. Um, well, I was actually raised in the church. Um, but, but when I realized that I was gay, I, I was experiencing these, these attractions. And you know what? People let me know that I was different. I was isolated. I was the one who wasn't invited to the birthday parties while all my friends were invited to the birthday parties. People would look at me from a distance. I was lonely. I was isolated. I had no place in the church. And that's best case scenario. Lonely, isolated, depressed, no place in the church. That was kind of best case scenario. Worst case scenario, like in the case of Eric and like in the case of Maddie and Leslie, was I was shamed, I was mocked, I was abused, I was, I was pushed down the stairs. Les, my friend Leslie says, I can't tell you how many times I was pushed down the stairs in high school and in church. And so I'm listening, so I'm, I'm wrestling with what the Bible says, but then I'm listening to these stories, and I'm, I'm like, there's something that's just not matching here. My friend Drew Harper, he's a gay man, was raised by an evangelical uh, uh, parents who they both have a wonderful relationship now. He summed it up, I think, well, to be gay in the American evangelical church is to be dead. 
You're an outcast, an orphan, a refugee, a diseased person. And so I had kind of a crisis moment. I, I'm wrestling with what the Bible says, but then I'm hearing these stories, and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Somewhere I heard that the church is supposed to be a, a hospital for sinners. So my question is, when did it become a graveyard for gay people? My friend Leslie, who was, again, committed to the church throughout high school, one day she recalls that her pastor began a sermon series on homosexuality. He condemned all homosexuals to hell. God had no forgiveness, no forgiveness for such deviance. Even worse was the mentally ill trans community. He spoke in detail about men becoming women, women becoming men. These people were an abomination in God's eyes. They were unsavable. We must protect our children from their evil ploys. And my friend shouted, amen, showed the appropriate levels of disgust, and I was ashamed. I was ashamed that was such an abomination to the God that I adored. And I asked Leslie, I said, what did you, what did you do in that moment? Like, what, when, you, when you hear that, what, what did you do? And she kind of looked at me very gently and said, well, what would you do? I mean, if... If, if the God you're trying to love, that you're trying to wrestle with these, you know, she's wrestling with her gender identity and wrestling with her faith and trying to, to manage this, and all she wants is people to wrestle with it with her as a community, and if they're not willing to do that, I, I need to find, I can't do this alone. So I need, I need to find some sort of loving community to help me do this, and so she had to leave the church and become part of the LGBT community where she was loved and accepted. You know, at the end of my study, I spent thousands, literally thousands of hours pouring through the Bible and, and other books. I would spend hours and hours and hours on single verses to make sure that, that I'm understanding these verses right. And I want to be super clear. Theologically, I believe, after looking at it all, considering both sides as fairly as I can, I believe that God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. I believe that the Bible prohibits same-sex sexual relationships, even if it's in the context of a, of a marriage. I think the Bible categorically says that same-sex sexual relations, same-sex marriage is, is not God's design. But I also believe that the church has not done a good job, generally speaking, at caring for and loving and delighting in and valuing the wonderful LGBTQ people that God has gifted us with. Because we can get the Bible right, but if we get love wrong, we're wrong. Because some people say, well, I'm going to err on the side of truth. <laughs> and, and then the love category kind of goes down, but if you're all truth and little to no love, you're not actually celebrating the truth because love is part of the truth. And truth is part of love. If, if you're on the love side and say, well, I'm going to set aside the truth for the sake of love, you're not actually being loving in a biblical way because biblical love includes the truth. It's not truth or love, it's truth and love. And I'm not talking about the... the um, the cliched, love the sinner and hate the sin. 
You know that phrase? <laughs> it, 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 that's always kind of rubbed me wrong. I couldn't put my finger on it, really. Because, it sound, I mean, on paper, it kind of sounds, like, I guess that's, that's true. But it, I got to tell you, it does have a kind of condescending feel to it, especially in this conversation. And so instead of love the sinner and hate the sin, why don't we say, let's love the sinner, let's hate our own sin, and let's do this Jesus thing together? How's that? Because Christianity is like one beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. You know, we're like starving beggars, and, and we found this cross, and at the foot of the cross, there's a huge pile of bread, and, and we're just stuffing our face with the bread of life, and we, we can't get enough, but the bread just won't go away. There's so much bread to go around, and so now we're, we're, we're finding other hungry beggars where to find bread. Hungry beggars are not the enemy. I love what Paul says in Romans 2.4. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. The kindness of God that leads to repentance, which means the church should be the embodiment of God's kindness. Right? That's real simple. That's just kind of Christianity 101, right? That the church should, if God's kindness leads to repentance, and we all experience that, right? If you're here today and you have a faith commitment to Jesus, you experience, you tasted the kindness of God at one time in your life, and hopefully you're still feeding on that kindness. And so the church, we embody that kindness into the world. And so I want you to ask your gay, lesbian, transgender friends. Ask them. When you think of the church, do you think of kindness? If the answer to that is no, then we got a problem. I love uh, the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, Luke 19. Luke 19, Jesus, uh, Jesus and Zacchaeus. Um, if you've been a Christian for more than 10 minutes, you've probably heard the story. <laughs> so you can turn it if you want. You probably got it memorized. But um, Luke 19, the story of Jesus is coming through Jericho and and, he, and, and there's a huge crowd that, that, that mobs him, right? And he looks up in the tree and he sees this, this, this wee little man that we sing about in Sunday school. This wee little man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And, uh, you know, I, for some, maybe it's, maybe it's uh, I'm reading, reading the story in children's Bibles to my kids or whatever. But it, it always pictures Zacchaeus, this cute little man, kind of, you know, out on a tree limb like this. He usually has a cat following him because, you know, there's all these animals in children's Bibles. And, you know, just this, this cute, you just want to pet him, right? Zacchaeus, he's just a cute guy. But look, tax collectors in the first century, these were like the thug of all thugs. I mean, this guy, Zacchaeus, was committing political and religious treason. And according to Jewish tradition, tax collectors were known for living like excessively immoral lives. Like they didn't have a moral bone in their body. This guy was a thug. This guy was like, I mean, there's not a, you know, yeah, there's, there's not a bar in Bellingham that would house the, the type of thugginess that, <laughs> that Zacchaeus was. Um, so Jesus comes into the town and, and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus, come on, quickly, come down now. I need, I need to stay at your house today. And the whole crowd goes nuts. They're like, what, that guy? 
You're going to go under his roof? Because in the, in the first century, like Middle Eastern hospitality, you don't go under somebody's roof unless you want a relationship with that person, unless you want to receive that person, unless you want to be reconciled to that person, unless you want to enjoy that person over a meal, a glass of wine, and get to know them, and them get to know you. This was a, a bold statement, Zacchaeus, I must come under your house today. A thug of all thugs. And after he goes into the house, all of a sudden Zacchaeus is running around repenting like crazy. He's like, if I've stolen anything, I want to give back 400%. I'm going to give away half my goods to the poor. You know what Jesus did to get Zacchaeus to repent? Did he pick him up by his wee little ankles and shake him for all his money? You little jerk, you need to give back all, you know. Or, or maybe, maybe, maybe Zacchaeus gave his stance on the tax-collecting lifestyle or the Roman agenda. <laughs> we can be friends and all, Zacchaeus, but I, you need to know where I stand on the issue of the tax-collecting lifestyle because you're a practicing tax collector, and I need, you need to know where I'm at on this, and, and, then, and then if you, you know, stop doing what you're doing, then, then we can be friends. You know, what, you know what Jesus said to get Zacchaeus to repent? Nothing. He didn't say a word. If you look at Luke 19, Jesus speaks twice in the entire incident. First, he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house. And then after Zacchaeus repents, Jesus is sitting in the corner eating a fig. Oh, I made that up. But he's sitting back and, and says, you just got saved. <laughs> How did Zacchaeus repent? He experienced, he tasted the kindness of God by being received. He was received by the Messiah because it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Not, you switch that around and you destroy the gospel. If you think your repentance leads to God's kindness, mm -mm. God takes the initiative and that initiative is saturated in love and grace. There was a... Um, a study done a while back, um, a couple years ago, on the, the religious background of LGBTQ people. Uh, biggest, it was the biggest social scientific study done on the religious background of LGBT people. Um, did you know that 83% of the LGBTQ community was raised in the church? That's, that's incredibly high. That's like, I think the national average is like 70%. This is why I don't know about, I mean, and some of you, statistically, again, if I'm, I hope I'm not using too much like us versus them language, statistically, 10, 20, 30 of you here are gay or wrestling with your sexuality or gender identity. Some of you are out, some of you are not. Some of you are married for 10, 20 years and your spouse doesn't even know it. Never fails. Whenever I speak at a church, I usually get emails from people that I'm the first person they actually have told So 83%, some of you are, are here, 51% um, have left the church by the time they're 18 years old. And, and that, I guess that's not a, given the stories I've heard, that's not too much of a shocker. But here is where, <laughs> here is where those on the right and those on the left, they, they assume the same thing here. When you ask the question, why did they leave? You see, because those on the right are going to say, well, they couldn't handle the truth. 
They couldn't handle the truth, and you know what? We, we, we welcome everybody, but if you can't handle the truth, then you just, you just got to get out of here. And those on the left are going to say kind of the same thing. They're going to say, well, yeah, your truth is inherently destructive and bigoted, and that's why they left. It's your, it's your truth, your view of marriage that is driving people away. And so in this, it's interesting. Most people on the right, most people on the left are assuming the same thing. They're assuming that this is a theological problem, and the church needs to change its theology in order to reach LGBT people. But according to LGBT people themselves, only 20% said they left for theological reasons. And a small percentage of that 20% said it was the church's view of marriage and sexuality. That's the reason why I left. Which means most LGBT people leave not for theological reasons, but for but for relational reasons. They were shamed. They were mocked. They were treated like some subhuman species of the human race. They were like Leslie, where, where she was trying to follow God. She was trying to wrestle. She just wanted a community to wrestle with. But that community, it's not so much that she left the church. You see, the church left her. And I'm fascinated that 76% said, you know what? I would actually be willing to return to church. I, there's, there's just something about this community that I, I long to be a part of again, of the people that left. But they said, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't, I, yeah, I would, I would go back to church if the church made some changes. And again, those on the right are going to say, we're not changing our theology. And those on the left are going to say, you need to change your theology if they're going to return. But according to LGBT people themselves, only 8% said it's, you need to change your theology which means 92% said, um, can, you, can you not dehumanize me? <laughs> um, I would love to come to church, but can you, can you not shame me? Can you, can, you, can you listen? Can you just listen to me and listen to my story? Can, can, you, can you invest it? Can, can you be part of my journey? It's not the church's theology that's driving LGBT people away. It's not what we believe, but you know what it is? It's how we believe. It's because, historically, the church has been very welcoming to people struggling with porn, alcohol, drugs, greed, anger. Did I miss anybody? Um, gluttony, comfort, apathy. <laughs> Or how, how, about, how about the misuse of money? You know, the, there's more than 2,000 passages in the Bible that talks about the misuse of money, not caring for the poor, being greedy, not being generous enough. According to, there's, I mean, I can keep going here. Let me just give you a few stories here. Ben, 29-year-old gay man, raised in a church. He's, one, he's a statistic. He's one, he's one of the 50% that have left. He says, I left the church because I couldn't find anybody who cared to listen to my story. I, I mean, really listen. I'm talking about listening to the extent of investing in my journey with my faith so deeply that I can actually call them brother and sister and mean it. My problem, Sally says, isn't with God. It's always been with the institution that allows those who claim to obey God and yet make me feel most alienated. Tasha, all I wanted was to feel loved by those in the church I grew up with. Love is giving me time to be with you to figure this out together. 
If you let, I love this, if you let any church people read this, <laughs> that's us, right? That's all of us right here, church people. Tell them I don't have to be right to feel loved. I have to be dignified in our disagreement. Oh, man. Is there anything in the Bible that says we can't dignify people in our disagreement? I've met Christians who, who they feel, if they're kind to somebody at work who's gay, they feel guilty. Like they're betraying the Bible, like they're betraying God, like they're giving up on their theological convictions because they're being kind. I just uh, talked to a guy the other day. He says, you know what? My whole life, I've just been disgusted at gay people. I said, thank you for your honesty. But he says, you know what? I've been, a guy at work is gay, been hanging out for over a year now, and I just, I actually, I really enjoy hanging out with him. I, I actually, he's a really fun guy to be around. I, 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 we're, we have fun together, good conversations. And, and I could sense he's almost feeling guilty, like, oh, I hope Jesus isn't disappointed in me. <laughs> I want to release you, give you, th- well, this is a Catholic church. <laughs> it's tomorrow night, no. <laughs> I want to release you from the theological pressure to feel like you've got to be mean <laughs> or unkind or distant to gay people out of allegiance to the scriptures. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus did not embody that. So I want to, um, I want to get super practical for the, the next uh, 10, 15 minutes we have here. Super practical. I, I'm a, a Bible scholar at heart, and so sometimes we get a bad rap for being you know, two ivory tower up in the clouds, you know, we just talk about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and it's all abstract and unpractical. So I want to get, I want to get super practical and just talk about five relational do's and don'ts in this conversation. Okay. So I love Bob, the series on conversations. Every church should do a series like this. Just learning how to converse about difficult topics. Five relational do's and don'ts Number one, this, this one could be number one, two, three, four, and five. It's just so huge. And if all you do is, if you just get this one and fall asleep, you're, you're, still, you're still good. I mean, this is, this is so important. Listen, listen, and listen again. I can't, I mean, I, when I sat down and just started listening to the stories, I wasn't even doing anything. Like, I was just listening. I'm not even a good counselor. I don't even naturally love people. I'm like, you know, of, of the empathy and analytic. I'm high analytic and low empathy. Like, empathy I need to, like, work hard at, you know? So it's not, so I'm not, I'm not doing, I'm not, like, reaffirming and counseling. I'm just listening, but, but genuinely listening. And listening to the point of caring and loving. I, I, I hung out with uh, my, my friend Tom closeted gay pastor who nobody knows this. Can you imagine living 60 years of your life where not a single person knows who you really are and still accepts you? I spent all day with Tom uh, a few months ago, and uh, just all I did was just hang out. We had breakfast, lunch together. We just talked. We talked a lot, and he was very open with me with his struggles, and I, you know, just just listening didn't give any wise counsel or whatever. Just listen. At the, at the end of that day, he said, Preston, this has been the best day of my entire life. I said, Tom, I didn't, what do you mean? Like, I didn't do anything. He said, 
I've been in your presence all day. You know who I am. You know my struggles, and you still love me and accept me. I don't know what that feels like. I've never experienced that in my entire 60-plus years. Listen, listen, listen. And don't listen so that, right? You know the listener that's like listening, like just waiting to jump in and correct, right? Uh-huh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, boom. <laughs> don't listen so that. Listen because. Love, not so that. Love because. Don't love or listen with some agenda in mind. Listen and love because God loved you. And you have the love of God pulsating through your veins and it just outflows into the lives of other people. Number two, learn the language. Uh, this is something that a lot, I would say a lot of um, straight conservative Christians really struggle with and, and even get annoyed at. Especially if you're kind of like an anti-political correctness person, you know. When, when people start talking about what, what words you should use, I know a lot of people, walls go up. So, so let me, I want to bring those walls down a little bit and say, language is so incredibly powerful and there's no other conversation I know where language is, is as crucial as this conversation. And, and we all know that the power of language is, is, is undeniable. I've got a friend, he's a, he's a Jew, um, and he lives in New York. And um, he says, growing up, he says, um, Preston, you know, when people ask me, are you Jewish? That, w- that meant something very different than, are you a Jew? He says, if somebody says, are you Jewish, that's an innocent statement. If they said, are you a Jew, that's an accusation with anti-Semitic undertones. Now, on paper, they mean the same thing. But, but words aren't just on paper. They have cultural currency and symbolic power. They pick up meaning through time, and we need to be very sensitive to that. If your doctor came to you and you say your wife's pregnant or you're pregnant and said, I think we should terminate the pregnancy, I think most of you would say, what you're really telling me is you want me to kill my unborn child. You see, words, words mean something. In the words of my favorite theologian, um, Albus Dumbledore, uh, words, <laughs> words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic, capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. So there's a few, I mean, so... Learn, I, I, learn what LGBTQ is. Why the Q? What about IA and the others? It doesn't take a lot of time, but it will be meaningful to people around you. There's other terms that are being used that we should be aware of. The difference between transgender and transsexual. Gender fluid, gender queer. The difference between queer and gay and so on and so forth. There's also some phrases we should avoid. Let me, let me just share a few with you that my gay friends have been harping on for, for a while now. Um, uh, and, and let me just say up front, if, if, you, if you're used to using these phrases, I, there's no judgment for me. We, we all just kind of absorb the language you grew up with. But I, I would encourage you not to use these phrases again, okay? Uh, number one, gay lifestyle. Gay lifestyle. Uh, that word, the phrase, is, is often used by straight people who are uh, very kind of anti-gay. Are you living the gay lifestyle? I love it when they turn around and say, well, are you living the straight lifestyle? <laughs> like, what do you mean? I'm not, 
You're just going to lump me in the, in the category of every single straight person on the planet? Just because I'm straight, you think I just have a certain lifestyle that, that is the same as my friends in, in southern Germany and northern Uganda? And I'm not just, you can't categorize me like that. Just because I'm straight doesn't mean I'm like every other straight person on the planet. And they said, exactly. <laughs> straight, li- gay lifestyle. Or even similar, practicing homosexual. One of my gay friends, who's theologically conservative, he's like Matt, committed to celibacy. So he's very conservative theologically. He says, you know what, I don't need to practice on my homosexuality. I'm already really good at it. I wake up every day, I'm still attracted to guys, and there's no practice necessary here. Practicing homosexual, it's, it's again used by straight people who usually don't really know gay people very well. The gay agenda um, is often associated with kind of political stuff going on. Um, one of my gay friends says, if there is a gay agenda, I didn't get the memo. I wasn't invited to the conference to talk about this agenda. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't have the same agenda as every other gay person on the planet. Uh, see, all these are very stereotyping. They, they, don't, they don't consider the actual person. They just try to distance this as some issue to debate and disagree with. Even the term, let me tell you this, even the term homosexual, are you a homosexual? Did you see that homosexual over there? It, it's, not technically, it's not technically wrong, that's the textbook word people use, but it's not the word gay people prefer to be used of themselves. One of my friends said, you know, using the term homosexual, it'd be like walking into an IT department and asking for a floppy disk. Uh, floppy disks are real, that's the right term, and, and maybe an IT department would be a place to go. But they're just going to look at you like, where have you been the last 20 years? You, you haven't cared enough to keep up with the discussion. So I don't, I, I've dropped homosexual from my vocabulary. I always say gay or lesbian or LGBTQ or whatever the person prefers. Number three, uh, don't be a hypocrite. Uh, this is obviously not limited to this conversation. One of the things... Jesus confronted most aggressively, right, was religious hypocrisy. In this conversation, um, this has been a huge bone of contention among the 83% of LGBT people who are raised in the church. Because they they, they sat there in our our pews and looked around and said, well, that person's on his fourth marriage. That person's had an affair. Um, that person's super generous or greedy and isn't generous. That person's a racist. That person's addicted to porn. That person's addicted to porn. That person's addicted to porn. I mean, keep going there. <laughs> but for some reason, it's the hospital for sinners, unless you're gay. That, that's, that's been the tone of, of we will tolerate certain sins, certain struggles. We will welcome them in and celebrate them But when it comes to this issue, this question, these people, they haven't felt the same acceptance and they're tired of the hypocrisy. You know what's fascinating is there's five verses in the Bible that directly mention and prohibit same-sex sexual behavior. Five verses. In every single one of those five passages, the prohibition of same-sex sexual behavior is, is listed among many other Straight sins or sins committed by everybody. It's never really singled out and upheld as like this is the really, really dirty stuff, but greed, that's not that big of a deal. In fact, Romans 1, Romans 1 is a famous passage that probably 
talks most extensively about same-sex behavior. It goes on to mention envy, gossip, slander, arrogance, pride, disobedience to parents. Is there anybody left? We are beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. And we need to give that posture, make that posture. Uh, number four, don't be afraid to say, I'm sorry. Um, a couple of years before I, I released my, uh, a couple years ago before I re- released my book, People to be Loved, some, some people on the, on the internet um, found out that, uh, you know, cons- uh, theologically conservative white straight male is talking about homosexuality. And a lot of people got really upset because um, they thought, you have no business in this conversation. I think people are, LGBT people are tired of having white straight males enter into this conversation and feel like they have something to say. And so I was getting a lot of flack for writing this book, and, and so I rattled off a blog saying, why a white straight male is talking about homosexuality. It was a really snarky blog. It was, um, it was aggressive. It was somewhat condescending. And, and it just wasn't kind. Even my friends said, you know what? You just didn't seem like you. You seem kind of bitter and defensive and angry. And that hasn't been your posture so far. And so I, you know, I sat back and I prayed and, and I sought counsel. And I ended up writing another blog a couple days later titled An Apology. And all I did is I spent the entire blog specifically apologizing and repenting from some demeaning, dehumanizing things I said. I apologize for my tone. I apologize for some ignorance that I had in that original blog. I, I didn't apologize for my theological views. I can't, I mean, that's not, my theology is received, not determined. Like, it, it's what I, that's my faith commitment. I can't apologize for that. But I, I did apologize extensively for how I, I came off in that blog. And I didn't say, I'm sorry if that offended you. That's not an apology. <laughs> I'm sorry if you took it that way. You married people, you do that sometimes. I still fall into that sometimes. I'm sorry if that offended you. She's like, are you apologizing for me or for you? <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. I was wrong, and, and I'm terribly sorry for, for how I communicated in that previous blog. I had so many people, LGBT people, contact me and say, um, we've, we've never heard an evangelical leader apologize before. We're, we're really confused. Like, what's going on? <laughs> and I said, you, you never heard an evangelical leader apologize? Isn't that kind of what should be in our veins? Apologizing for sin, confessing sin, repenting, like that should be the rhythm of our life. If they've never heard that, then that's a problem. And, and a lot of them said, you know what, I, I was so angry at your original blog, I was angry you were writing this book, but then you apologized. And now I'm, now I'm confused. Now, now I actually want to read your book. An apology, especially in this conversation, can go a long way. Lastly, be a safe person. Be a safe person. There are well, every single LGBT person I know that was raised in a church, they said, when I started to wrestle with my same-sex attraction, my gender identity, when I was struggling, I was doing it alone, and I was, I was on the lookout for safe people. All I wanted was to be in the presence of somebody who's safe to talk to. They were, look, they were looking for somebody to embody the Jesus 
the Jesus-like posture that he had towards Zacchaeus, who said, I must stay at your house. Safe people don't tell gay jokes. Safe people don't laugh at gay jokes. Safe people confront other people who tell gay jokes. Safe people listen more than they preach. Safe people don't use outdated language. Safe people don't just say it's wrong. They also say you're loved. My friend Tom has been a pastor for decades. And he says, I can't tell you. It never, ever gets old. I can't hear it enough. I can't hear it enough. I can't hear it enough that God loves me. Because every hour of every day, I doubt that. My friend Lori, who was um, same-sex attracted, she's conservative theologically, married to another man now, still attracted to women. And she was in the closet in, in high school wrestling with her sexuality. And she says she was on the lookout. Any, like, I, I was looking for somebody to talk to, and I just... I didn't find anybody that was safe. And she says, they weren't intentionally, they weren't like, like demonizing me. They weren't like slamming on me or shaming me. They just didn't have that aura that if I came out to them, they would look me in the eye and listen. We need to be safe people. Um, my friend Leslie, after she left the church, she ended up finding a wife, got married to a woman and um, left her faith. And um, five years into her marriage, well, a few years before, a few years into the marriage, her, her wife contracted a, a rare disease, and, and it caused her to, to shake. And um, five years into their marriage, she, uh, her, her wife went outside to, to light a cigarette, and she was shaking so bad, she ended up lighting herself on fire and died. Leslie was on the road. She, she came back and found her wife dead. And she was, she's already had a rough journey in life. And now she is just, she's just at, at the pit of the valley. She doesn't know what to do. So she, so she goes to her phone book, flips to churches. Remember those things, phone books? <laughs> Finds the first church. It's some cons- conservative church, first Baptist, whatever, she picks up the phone, shaking herself and, and just desperate and says, um, I, I don't, you don't know me, I don't know you, but my, my wife, she's, you know, she's Leslie's, my wife just died and I need somebody to do the funeral and I have nobody else to talk to. Would you, would you do the funeral for my wife? Um, I'm curious, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. If you picked up that phone, what would you have said? Would you have done the funeral for the deceased wife of a lesbian couple? Because some people will might leave the church over that. M- maybe your biggest donor will leave the church. <laughs> well, the pastor sat there on the phone. And he didn't say, sure. He said, Leslie, we would be honored to. She knew where he was theologically, but she was so, she was so floored by that simple yet life-changing act of kindness. We would be 
we would be honored to. I'm so sorry for your loss that she ended up coming back to Jesus. And now she, she runs this ministry helping other teenage kids wrestle with their faith and their gender, gender identity. Why? Because she experienced the embodied kindness of God through a simple act of love from a theologically conservative pastor. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Father, we thank you for your great love for us, and I pray that your spirit would fill our hearts, would, would, would fill our minds, would, would help us to, to live in this messy tension of truth and grace, Lord. I'm sure everybody in this room um, tends to one or the other. All of us have a, have a truth bent or a grace bent. I pray, Lord, that we would that we would find that messy middle, that we would not see it as an either or, but a both and, that we would live in that tension of truth and grace, Lord, a tension called love. Give us wisdom, Lord, to navigate relationships with people, all people that we may disagree with, that there may be differences in front of us. I pray that we would reach out and embody the Zacchaeus-like love that Zacchaeus experienced. Thank you so much that at one point in our lives, we experienced that kindness of God that led to our repentance. Help us to do the same. In Christ's name, amen.